Mac Power Users, episode 577, Workflows with Shahid Kamil Ahmad. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks. I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? I, uh, I'm happy, man. It's Monday morning. When we record on Monday mornings, that's our secret, right? But the, uh... I, there's something about the optimism of a Monday. Is that weird? Yeah. No, that's weird. I look at the week in front of me. I'm like, I'm going to be so productive this week and have a great time at the same time. And you know what else makes it great? Starting talking to some friends. And we have a friend with us today. Welcome back to the show, Shahid Kamal Ahmad. How are you today, Shahid? I'm very good. Thank you very much. And I'm delighted to be back. You are one of my favorite guests. Uh, you've been on, you've done the whole circuit now. Uh, although, have you been on Automators yet? I don't know if you've been on Automators yet, but you, you've been on uh, most of my shows. And every time you come on a show, I get so much email from people saying, that guy's so smart. Why don't you have him on more often? Oh, bless. Well, it's true. It's just true. You know that. Um, and uh, it's been a while since you've been on Mac Power Users. And I know you've changed up a bunch of stuff. Apple has kind of turned their product line upside down. And now you're you're doing more hands-on development work. So we thought it'd be fun to have you back in to see what the heck's going on in Shahid world. Oh, an awful lot has changed, I can tell you. In fact, I'm, I'm sure that I've forgotten half of the things that have changed in these turbulent times. But that's fine. There's an awful lot to talk about. Yeah, well, we did a, a prep call. We got a big outline today, lots to cover. Uh, we are going to talk on the More Power Users episode today about spotify hi-fi and just like all of the turbulence in the streaming world because there seems to be a lot and uh, we all have opinions so we're going to save that one for the more power users but um why don't we start shahid talking about your gear what are you driving these days oh well the big difference between now and the last time we spoke is i have two setups and they're not quite identical, because that would be nuts. They have slightly different focuses. So I still have the Shah Shed, of course. And in the Shah Shed, I have, yeah, as of last week, actually, I made the final switch to an all-mobile-centric setup. So I have my okay. wonderful Herman Miller sit-stand ratio desk, which is always set to um, to stand. In fact, I don't even have a chair there anymore. And I have one of these 12 South book arcs, I think it is, that I bought for maybe yeah. three MacBooks ago. And it's still, <laughs> it, yeah. it still kind of flabbily holds my latest MacBook Pro 16 in place. It wobbles a bit, but it's fine. That particular product, I know they send multiple inserts with it. So if you buy one of those book arcs, keep the box because if you get a different MacBook, you can adjust it for, you know, whatever the machine of the week is. I think I lost my inserts and I also have used it so uh -oh. much that I've worn away the rubber protectors at the bottom. So it's fine. I mean, it's okay. going to be replaced quite soon. I've I think it was sometime last year, as soon as the um, the bridge vertical dock for the 16-inch MacBook Pro was announced, I pre-ordered that. And they they tell me, yeah. they assure me that it will be arriving at the end of this month, but it has been delayed before. That'll make life a lot easier. So so which MacBook are you putting in it? It's a, 
a 16-inch MacBook Pro, but I'm also putting in a Dell. Nice. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. We we for for the audience uh, listeners that don't remember, Shahid is a game developer. You were a mucky muck at Sony for a long time, and then you went independent, and uh, you're doing uh, video game development. But you're also kind of a productivity nut. You've run your own company and whatnot. So I would assume that if you do game development, you probably have to have both platforms on your desk. That's the interesting thing. When we spoke the last time, it was essential to have a PC for game development. But things have changed. I've been able to use the Mac as my dominant game dev platform. And the reason for that is simply that I've been targeting with my latest development work, iOS, Mm. And that means iPhone and um, and iPad as well, and Android, which means Android phones and Android tablets. And the thing about Unity is it will target either iOS or Android from a Mac. And the only reason I have the PC now is because it's much quicker in Unity to have a, a different target per machine, because then you don't have to do that silly switch platform thing, which you have to wait even on a fast machine, eh, it depends on the size of the project, but it can be anywhere from five to 15 minutes to do a, uh, a switch because it has to rebuild libraries for whatever the new target is. So if you just keep them separate, then it's absolutely fine. But the truth is, if you had two Macs, you could have, and I do now, that's changed, um, you could target iOS from one and Android for the other, and you wouldn't have to touch the PC at all. That I still have a PC means that there are still some things that require or prefer a PC, but it's becoming less and less the case, which I have to say is a delightful turn of affairs. Yeah, you know, I had a friend that used to, an attorney friend that had a Dell XPS computer, and I, I it, we, we had a case against each other. You know, lawyers can actually be friends and, and have cases. We fought like, like, you know, crazy against each other, but we went to court and he had this Dell XPS computer and it was like the ugliest computer I've ever seen. It had like built-in LED stuff where it, I just couldn't believe he'd use it in front of a jury, but he did. <laughs> um, but I'm looking now at the website. I'm looking at the website and it looks like Dell has kind of cleaned up the look of their XPS computers. They look, they look nice again. They're trying very hard to be more Mac-like. That said, it is significantly heavier and bulkier than the MacBook Pro 16, which is now my favorite laptop of all time. It's not bad, the Dell. I mean, you know, the screen is really beautiful. I have to say they've done a great job with the screen. Its bezel is absolutely minuscule. And it's, uh, in that sense, certainly beats the MacBook Pro. Yeah. But would I rather be using it? No. Yeah, the the bezel really feels like an area that Apple's got to catch up on. And it's not just a a lot of other PC vendors do that as well. But yeah, I I agree. The XPS line has come a long way. I know if you if you read sort of roundups like the best, you know, all around Windows notebook, the XPS 13. So the little brother to what you have very often is very high on those lists. It seems like a great machine. And has a great graphics card, too. And that's an area in which Dells and other PC laptops continue to have the upper hand over Macs. Mm-hmm. Especially for gamers. Yeah, yeah. So I have the uh, the NVIDIA 
2060 Super Max-Q. I don't know how many more qualifiers they can stick in the name to try and differentiate it or perhaps show <laughs> that it's in some way inferior to the full version. Who knows? I mean, all I need to know is, will it run PC games fast? And it's fast enough. It's not as good as a desktop, but I have a desktop for that. The same yeah. old one I had uh, the last time we spoke, but which now features a beefy NVIDIA RTX 2080 Ti. All these things you got to remember now. I mean, it's just nuts. But yeah, this this is a really beefy graphics card in, in my desktop PC. And I'm not, not too shabby at all. Graphics card in, in the Dell. Sadly, the the gpu in the macbook pro while it's okay you know you can run some mac games on it 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 does struggle and that's not going to change until well you know let's hope this year something changes you know we keep hearing these rumors about the you know the new apple silicon macs that apple has these ideas of putting together like 64 core graphic processors and I, I mean, we'll see, right? But I, I think we may have to have you on even just for a brief segment once that happens, just to get your thoughts on whether Apple is going to finally be the real deal with graphics processing on the Macs. Well, I, I have a lot of faith. You know, I, I think they will move towards it. I don't know if they'll do it this year, but yeah. I don't doubt them anymore. I mean, the M1 really changed my mind about Apple and its serious commitment towards the, the Macintosh. I called it Macintosh. Are you still allowed to call it the Macintosh? Yes. I'm, I'm yes, still you old are. school. Yep. Okay. Nope, nope. Totally fine by me. You, you two are the authorities here, so I, I bow <laughs> to your seniority. Absolutely. That is the classy way to refer to it. Oh, I'm so pleased Your to Macintosh that. computer. Yes. Something you're doing with your Mac that I wanted to share with the audience, because I'm just kind of super curious about this experiment. You hooked up your Mac in Tosh to a 49-inch ultra-wide LG TV. Well, I hooked it up to a 48-inch LG TV, OLED, and I also hooked it up yeah. to a 49-inch LG widescreen, ultra-wide, super-duper ultra-wide monitor. That's right. You so you've gone both directions. Yeah, so the TV and the ultra wide. Exactly. The ultra wide lives in the shed. Uh, the TV is in the spare room. And the reason I do that is it, it's my it's my gaming, podcasting, and other stuff. Imagine the air quotes there. Um, setup. And so I've got the PS5 plugged into it. I've got the Mac uh, Mini with the M1 chip plugged into it. And I have the huge lumbering Dell Alienware Area 51 that I had from last time, but the beefed up graphics card. Just to be clear, this is the 48-inch TV you're, you're talking yes, about. that's okay. right. That's the one you're interested in, right? Both, actually. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, with the TV, I also have a couple of cables dangling out that I can hook up to both the MacBook Pro 16 and the, the Dell XPS 9700. Aren't you impressed? I'm remembering all these numbers at my old age without any reference to notes. I tell you, I am. This is the best I've done in weeks. <laughs> well, you know, you had, did you, you know, have a solid breakfast today and, you know, I did, not think actually, too much about politics. The, um, <laughs> the, the, uh, what's it like when you hook up a Mac to a 48-inch TV? Because that's not, Oh, my you know, goodness. 
Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, so I struggled for a while to find the right cable so that I would get 60 hertz because for the longest time I was getting 30 hertz and I couldn't work out why for the life of me. I know, eventually something clicked. Maybe I messed about with the LG settings or you know, a whole bunch of things you had to go through with the LG to try and get it all to work properly. And you had to have the right cable as well. That's really important. But once I did, my goodness, 60 hertz at 4K or whatever they call the resolution I'm running it at, it's amazing because nearly always, if you're running 4K, you need to do some scaling on the UI. Otherwise, you can't see anything. Here for the yeah. first time, I've got no scaling on the UI, and it's great. <laughs> so I've got these enormous windows. And when I say enormous, I mean they, they would occupy full size on my MacBook Pro 16, which isn't a small screen. And it takes up a tiny area on the screen. But because this screen is enormous, absolutely enormous, and it's set slightly further back than a normal monitor, because otherwise you can't take it all in. Yeah, and and it really is just the most astonishing experience. I tell you what's really freaky about it, though. I mean, the size—I kind of started to get used to the size by using the forty-nine inch ultra wide and being able to stack five windows as five columns across uh, across the entire width of this two meter desk, or <laughs> so it seemed. Yeah. But the thing that I really love about the the TV is the OLED. Having an OLED that big and having proper black. Because I remember the last time you had me on, I was listening back to, to that episode to hear what had changed. And one of the things we were talking about was the OLED on the iPhone 10 at the time, I think it was. And both of us talking about how we preferred apps where they had true black. Yeah. And this has got true black everywhere. In fact, I have to check the light on the TV sometimes to make sure that it's actually on. Because the default setup I have for it is no background because you don't want the burn-in, right? I don't yeah. show desktop icons because, again, you don't want burn-in. I hide the menu bar, hide the dock. So the only time you're going to know is if you have something open. And I routinely turn it off just to save, uh, save the screen just in case whenever I walk away from it. So when something pops up, it's just boom. And this enormous brightness hits your eye. And it's not so much that it's incredibly bright per se, although it is a fairly bright screen. It's the contrast is shocking because you're just not used to it from years and years and years of looking at an LCD screen. Now, you also told me you're using that TV for your your uh, your video conferencing rig. And uh, explain to us just a little bit of what you've done with that TV for video conferencing. Well, when I was working with a larger team, video conferencing, we were already a distributed team at the time. So video conferencing was already important. And for those, for those meetings, I used uh, a Razer Keo webcam, which at the time I thought was this state-of-the-art webcam and uh, a really quite exuberant indulgence. But it proves not to have been the case because I now use and this is going to sound really over the top. I now use a Sony Alpha 6500, but not just the Alpha 6500. I've paired it with a Sigma 16 millimeter f over 1.4 lens, okay. which was which was something like four times the price of the Kio on its own. 
yeah. which gives you an idea of the the spend. But what that gives me, especially on the OLED, because you can expand the Zoom call up so that even when you've got a gallery of 20 or 30 people, you can see everyone's faces clearly on the 4K at that size. But it gives me the most creamy and natural bokeh. You don't have to worry about any of the built-in filters or or changing the settings or anything. And people do comment on it, but usually it's the ones who have already got a good webcam set up because people who don't have a great webcam set up don't really mind about that kind of thing anyway. But mm-hmm. the ones who are already making an effort are obviously a little bit teensy wit jealous. And I don't blame them. It is a flex, but I didn't do it as a flex. I did it for two reasons. First of all, because, you know, having had a distributed team for many years, I knew that video conferencing was just going to increase. It wasn't going to reduce. And although I didn't predict the kind of situation we'd be in, I did know that at some point I was going to want to improve my video conferencing setup. I just didn't know the best way to go about it. And the second reason I went for this is because I was already beginning to go down the path of gearing up for making YouTube videos. Now, I haven't delivered on that yet. I'm very close. I am um, at the point where uh, Tyler Durden was with his IKEA flat, maybe one or two pieces left before perfection. I'm hoping my setup doesn't go up in flames, obviously, unlike Tyler Durden's. But um, I don't think there's anything left. Maybe a really decent light. Once I've got a decent light, uh, then I'll be making YouTube stuff, but it'll also be great for video conferencing. I just think this is going to be the future now. I was reading several articles today about the future of work and what people feel about the what the new normal is going to be like. And these are these are not just people in the workplace who want more flexibility in their working lives. This was CEOs saying, this makes complete sense, that the old way was madness. And what that's going to mean is exactly as we all thought, a lot more video conferencing. So I think it pays to have a really good setup. Yeah. And, you know, it's getting easier. Like Sony has released software updates for their cameras to allow you to plug it directly into a Mac. Um, If you don't have a software update for whatever camera you have, uh, like the Elgato Cam Link is out there where anything Mm -hmm. with an HDMI out, you can plug it into your computer and it becomes a camera. And then yeah. you just put a, a little cheap tripod on it and put it next to your screen. Or if you want to be really fancy, uh, get a tall tripod and put it on top of your monitor. And you get this amazing, um, you know, video camera. And it is, people do comment on it. And it does kind of bring up the class level of your production if you're doing those meetings all day. See, one of the, one of the things I've got to do is coach people in Spain there's already a slight language barrier. I mean, their English is superb, but my coaching works best in person. And the next best thing is to give them the clearest possible transmission of my facial expressions, the clearest possible transmission of my voice. We don't have the other option. I can't go to Madrid and Barcelona and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so on. Um, and I probably won't be able to for the foreseeable future. So it's not just, as you say, David, about having the fantastic quality. It's about 
the quality of communication that it affords. Because you simply won't get that from an ordinary webcam. It's kind of, there's a presence missing, right? Yeah, I made that move uh, with my streaming stuff going from 4K webcams to a couple of small Sony cameras. And it is amazing the difference it makes because it feels way more lifelike, right? Webcams have a tendency to flatten everything out. And if you want, like you said, that richer communication, having things where they're sharper in focus and the background falls off, it just, it looks more the way real life looks. And I've had really good feedback on that. Uh, One thing I will say, if people are looking at this over the last year or so, a lot of camera makers have released updated firmware for modern models to do this over USB. But what I have found at least is that doing it over USB, uh, even like on my gaming PC, which is ridiculous, it is not very smooth looking uh, on the the couple Sony cameras I've tried it on. And so if you're really going to go for this and you want to use like a, a, a real camera, I think doing something like the cam link, which just uh, brings in over HDMI and then plugs into to USB, that, that looks way, way better. The HDMI output on a lot of these small cameras is a lot better quality than the USB output. And um, I think the Camlink 4K is back in stock. They've been in and out of stock over the pandemic because a lot of people are doing this. But if you're really leaning into this setup, I think that going over HDMI is uh, is a, a better way to do it. Did either of you use uh, Cascable by any chance? No, I don't think so. It's, it's, it's something that does it over Wi-Fi and software on the Mac. And okay. it's the only thing I could find to do it. And this is before Sony had released the software that you mentioned. And then eventually the software came out. And it's exactly as you said, Stephen, it was, there's just something not quite right about it. I couldn't put my finger on it. I mean, the advantage was that you can charge the battery at the same time. So, mm-hmm. so that's fine. But it was missing something. So then I did exactly what you suggested. I went for the Camlink 4K and I was able to get one. I have no idea how I managed to get one because they were, whenever I checked before, they were out of stock. And it's buttery smooth. It really is beautiful. Elgato really know their know their business, and I'm I'm pleased I went for for that in the end. And it's the one I settled on. And as for the charging problem, I got one of those false battery things. You just stick that inside the battery pack, and then yeah. that goes to a USB charging port, and and you're good to go. And I've not had any problems with it at all. It runs as long as I need it to. Doesn't seem to overheat. And, um, yeah, I mean, the YouTubers like, um, you've, you've done loads of YouTube stuff, Stephen. So you already know all this stuff. So the rest of the world is going to have to catch up with people who've been doing YouTube. And I know David, you were doing some videos and I I picked up some of this stuff from you as well. People out there should know, by the way, that I pick up 90% of my Mac tips from you and the rest is just osmosis (laughs) and probably came from you in the first place. (laughs) Well, I, I do think that this is something people should consider. If you've got a, an SLR camera in a drawer, so long as it has an HDMI out on it, that cam link is all you need to have a very nice setup. And it's going to be way superior to anything that you find built in or, frankly, any of these bolt-on you know, video cameras you buy. I I mean, they, they just aren't that good. And... um 
you can really make a difference. Now, do you guys keep your cameras like to the side of your monitor or have you gone all in and like mounted it at the top center of your monitor? I didn't know you'd done that, by the way, Steven. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I look straight on at the camera and the display is off to the side, but I'm I'm not in meetings on that rig like that is just for streaming and producing video. So it's a little bit different. I take, you know, if I'm on a video zoom call, like I was the other night for a school thing, I've got my, my Logitech webcam on top of my display. Um, but you know, I think as long as it's not shooting up your nose, (laughs) right. As long as the angle's not too severe, I don't think that placement is a, is a huge deal breaker. I think people have kind of gotten used to the fact that you may not make eye contact with them you know, during a meeting, especially in a work environment where you're looking at code or documents together or someone's giving a presentation, I think kind of wherever you can fit it in in your setup, I don't think makes a makes that big of a difference. I mounted mine on a Manfrotto magic arm with the magic clamp. And this thing grips onto the windowsill, which is just behind this massive LG TV. So the magic arm is some kind of, why is magic? I don't know how it works. It's physics or something. But it has, I think it's two, yes, two degrees of freedom. No, it has many more than that. It has, oh my goodness. It's like, a, it's like two gimbals, which are locked in place with a manual crank. And you, you, if you spin the gimbal the other way, in other words, to loosen, then the entire thing literally collapses so that those three-dimensional gimbals now become free to move. So you have, um, I think, one like an elbow, one like a shoulder, and one which is a ball end that holds the, the mounting clamp for the camera. But basically what it means is when you loosen it, you can move that arm to almost any position without any friction at all. A friction arm, that's what it's called with a magic clamp. And then you tighten it with a couple of uh, turns and it will stop dead exactly where it is. It's just incredible how it works. I have no idea how they do it. Some kind of witchcraft, I I suspect. But um, it's very impressive. And then what that allows me to do is to have the camera pointing down, but also leaning over the top of the screen. So it's actually ahead of the screen. And, And what that means is when I have video going on, I will position it such that I'm just about making eye contact with the camera when I'm speaking to the person. And I'll have my uh, my image off to the side somewhere. So when I need to check, um, it's it doesn't look like I'm looking away from the person listening. And when other people are speaking, I'm looking pretty much straight at the camera. And it works quite well. You have to give us a picture that we can put in the show notes so people can see how you've set it up. Because that course. sounds like something people would probably be interested in copying. But but I, I do think it's a good idea to give some thought to to your rig. And of course, um, with, whether you're putting it up on top of your monitor or to the side, get it high enough that there's no no-tear available, you know, visible, <laughs> you know, shoot down. Uh, but yeah, you can make a big difference with, with a little investment in camera. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password, where you can create and store strong and unique passwords. There's a lot of ways to manage secure information and passwords on your electronic devices, but I'm not aware of any of them that are better than 1Password. 
OnePassword not only allows you to create and save strong and unique passwords, it also allows you to securely store data and even share it with your family with a family plan. I love the family plan because probably once a week, someone in my family says, hey, dad, what's the Netflix password? Or my wife asks me, what's the bank password again? And I don't have to try to read this long password out to her or send it to her in a text message, which is really unsecure. Uh, I just tell her, hey, look in our common vault, and it's already there. I love telling them to look in the vault because then I don't have to do any more work. That's what I've done. I've created multiple vaults in my family. I've got the one that all four of us share together. I've got another one that my wife and I just share. And different types of passwords go into those shared vaults. And that way, if we make a change to it, it's changed for everybody in the shared vault. It just works. They don't even realize sometimes I've changed the passwords because they're using one password. It also encourages everyone to have safe and secure password habits. I really think it's made a difference with my kids and the way they think about security on the internet. But that's not all. With 1Password, you get all those other great features like Go and Fill, multi-platform support. It works with just about everything, Mac, PC, iPhone, iPad. Um, you can have Dropbox Sync. You can have it autofill. Um, you can even have it take care of secure data. Uh, I put in medical information, social security numbers, and things like that in secure 1Password notes. And that way I know that if someone gets my phone, they're not going to get that ultra-secure data. It's a great plan and a great system. So don't just take my word for it. Head over to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps. You get a nice discount on that family plan to get you started. I paid my renewal recently and I am a believer. Check out OnePassword and thank you, OnePassword, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. All right. Um, well, we didn't get to your, your super widescreen monitor. Let's just cover that quickly. We talked about that with Rose um, Orchard recently, but I don't think she was a 49-inch screen. This is a very wide monitor. I believe the aspect ratio is 32 by 9, and it's 5-1. It sounds ridiculous. It does. And you know what? It looks ridiculous. When you first set it up, it looks just, how are you going to use it? And the truth is, you can't see all of it in one go. You have to move around. Not much, but a little bit. It is slightly curved. I wish that the radius was slightly more. What is what it's like? Well, you've got uh, a resolution of 5,120 by 1,440. So that effectively means you can have five windows of 1,024 by 1,440, effectively full-size windows side by side. And the way I set up Moom, um, that wonderful window manager, is so that the default is to split stuff up into five columns and two rows. So with really crazy cases, I can have 10 windows on the screen and they're all legible. And I have done that. And often I'll have more than one screen on the Mac as well. So I'll have all my socials, my email, um, anything that will distract me from my task off on a, a screen to the side. And the main screen will be running Unity and Rider. But the fact is, I didn't expect it to make a, as big a difference to my productivity as it did. But the ability to have both Unity and the editor 
fully visible, fully available at all times on this one incredibly wide screen was a real boon. It really did help. And I found that I was switching context a lot less. I could make links between what was going on in one area of the code to what was happening on the screen, Unity, a lot more quickly. And it just meant less messing around with windows and positioning and so on, because they're just there. And I was talking earlier about how you can't take in the whole thing in one go. But that's fine. You know, that's what your peripheral vision is for. You're not actually, even when you're looking at a, a MacBook Pro's display, as as I am now, I'm not taking in the whole thing. I mean, yes, I have issues with my eyesight, but I can't take the whole thing in. I'm taking areas in at a time. So your focus is going to be a, at a certain point, but you know that there's stuff off in your peripheral vision that relates to what you're working on. It's why we're so good at driving. Yeah. I mean, often something will happen in our peripheral vision that will alert us. And I'm not saying that we need to be sensitive motion on a wide screen and that's why it works, but you have a rough uh, orientation process going on in your head that lets you know that the thing that you want to be working on is over there and you can just about see the edge of it. Uh, that, that's my rationale for having a really fancy monitor. But I found it did, it did reduce the number of times I had to resize, shuffle, or otherwise minimize and maximize windows. And it also, I felt more like the entire project was in front of me. That's a really odd thing to say, but you know, normally you shuffle an awful lot between different programs to do different workflows. And just with this monitor, I felt like, well, there's a project. It's in front of me. Everything I need is on the display right now. I don't need to switch anything. And that really did ramp up my speed on, on the project, which wasn't a short project, by the way. So goodness knows how long it would have taken me had I been restricted to a much smaller display. Well, I, I just think it's interesting because I've noticed there's two things going on with monitors outside of things that Apple makes that people are playing with lately. One is these ultra wides and the other is big OLED TVs. And my friend Shahid has them both. So I'm glad we were able to get a check in on that. <laughs> the other thing that you, you've you uh, been playing with is an M1 Mac mini. We've covered that a lot on the show, but you're here and you've got one. Give us your uh, your take on it. I was astonished. I was not astonished by Apple's announcement. But when I finally got one and used it, I was astonished. I was astonished at how such a small box could obliterate every other machine I'd ever owned. And yet I went for the base version. I went for the one with almost no RAM and almost no SSD. And yet it was destroying jobs that would otherwise make my, even my MacBook Pro 16 look, well, not slow exactly, but very last gen. The speed at which things start up was astonishing. The amount of tracks you could have going simultaneously in logic which shows the advantage of having an app optimized for that chipset was, was beyond belief, frankly. The amount of spare overhead you had once you had a, a normal project running in Logic was just breathtaking. Here's what it felt like. 
I, I've been in computing for coming up to 40 years. And I hear about supercomputers every now and again. And supercomputers are meant to be head and shoulders above the, the most expensive currently available computers available to businesses. Not consumers necessarily, not, not your average user who wants to just surf the web or whatever the cliche is. But business users who, who want to get a business machine will typically spend, I don't know, $1,500 to $2,000 or the equivalent in British pounds, right? But a supercomputer would destroy those things and would typically cost upwards of 5000 US. And whenever there's been something like that, the silicon graphics machines of the past or um, the next when, uh, when that was first announced, um, I remember there was the IBM PowerPC uh, with the RISC architecture. The, the What was it, the 6000? That was a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. But all of these machines were extremely expensive and they were considered the supercomputers of the time. And they never felt it. They felt better. There was a wow moment. But the thing that's amazed me about the Mac Mini with the M1 is that here's a computer that actually does feel like a supercomputer because I I haven't been able to tax it yet. I haven't heard it yet. And it was one quarter of the price of the machine I'm replacing. (laughs) It's just staggering. And, And the thing is, this is the beginning. This is not the statement piece. This is the, yeah, yeah, we're refreshing the basement line and this is it. And it blows away everything that you've got and it does it without breaking a sweat. And if you leave it on, it'll it'll suck less power than your iPhone. I mean, it's just, and the thing is the M1 Mac mini is pretty much empty. Imagine if they crammed it full of cores and and other (laughs) stuff, you know, well, what would it do then? Imagine if they let the fan spin up from time to time, you know, (laughs) let its hair down, let it run a little bit hotter. What could it achieve then? I think the future is incredibly bright. I think they sent an incredibly strong, brave, bold message out to every other manufacturer of chips. I think it shows the world once and for all why they had to dump Intel. And it revitalizes the world of Macintosh. Yes, Macintosh, in a way that we had hoped for, but had had barely dreamt was ever going to happen. I don't think any of us thought it was going to be this good. And it just feels like it's Christmas for Macintosh lovers again. Yeah, I mean, at some point this year, I expect we'll get a a 16-inch MacBook Pro with Apple Silicon. And earlier in the show, you had said that was your favorite laptop ever. And I'm super curious to see how those benchmark against each other. Once they get, you know, the more advanced Apple Silicon and the more advanced macbook pro you know what's going to be the real world difference between the two of them i expect it's going to be quite a bit i hope so and i i hope it it's not to the detriment of battery life i hope they carry on with the same pattern that they've adopted with the uh, macbook pro 13 inch with the m1 and with the macbook air with the m1 and that is to allow for a longer battery life while also delivering excellent performance. If they do that, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. And you know, I'm, I'm less concerned about the graphics. I think graphics will come. I don't expect amazing graphics. I expect better graphics this year, but I don't expect amazing graphics this year. And that's fine. You know, I didn't buy my Mac 
for the GPU. But as long as there are enough cores in there to get jobs done, because GPU is used by lots of creators, right? I mean, if you're if you're running any any kind of uh, movie making software, whether it's Final Cut Pro or DaVinci or dare I say it, Adobe Premiere, you want the GPU to be doing everything it, it can. And in that respect, it doesn't matter where the cores are. It's just that the GPU for the last few years has proven to be the best place to put it. Now, I'm not so sure because Apple has kind of changed the game a little bit. You've got Neural Engine. You've got your uh, CPU cores. You've got your GPU cores. I don't know how much more they can cram into that wafer because it's it's what it's system on a chip and that's what's helping it perform to the level it is. And I, I would imagine if they want a GPU with significantly more cores, I'm not sure they can cram that all into system on a chip and make it affordable. So I'm prepared to wait for the graphics revolution so long as I get more power than my current MacBook Pro and significantly more battery life. Oh, and yes, I would like a smaller bezel too, please. Yeah, and I also just think like our underlying assumptions about memory versus graphics versus processor are all kind of under attack right now with this. And I don't think I'm going to really be settled on how to think about those things until we see the whole line and how everything really works together. Yeah, I think that's right. How did that happen? How do we get from um, decades of bigger is better to a point where an eight gig machine, you know, is is quantitatively better than previous gen machines with twice the RAM? Integration. I mean, it's just, it's all that integration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it says a lot about that team within Apple. You know, they bought, PA semiconductor, gosh, 15, 20 years ago or something. And you're starting with the first iPad and the iPhone 4, just making it better and better every year. You know, that's that's been a long time now. And I think that clearly they have a lot of super bright people there who who are willing to get really, really deep. I mean, yes, it is integrated all the way through, but they're also doing stuff that previously no computer manufacturer ever did right they just go out and buy a processor and apple's just not content with that anymore clearly yeah i mean part of that ingenuity that you allude to is evident in the spectacular success that is rosetta 2 i've never seen anything like it i mean no one even speaks about the emulation because not only does it just work it's like is it possible that stuff that's written for the previous gen process, I'm going to call it previous gen. I'm sorry, Intel, but that's just how it is. <laughs> um, is it possible that that stuff actually runs better on an M1 than it does on an Intel? In a lot of cases, yes. I right. mean, it's, it's, it's benchmarked faster. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. I don't think I've seen that before unless you... you see, in the past, whenever you've had a processor emulated... It was emulated by a far more powerful processor. And that, for me, says very clearly that the Intel stuff is previous gen. And it's probably previous gen minus one. Um, Because by the time they've caught up, Apple are going to be how many steps ahead? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you see that with phones, right? Where these processors have their origins, where Apple benchmarks and performs way higher than than chips from Qualcomm and others. And 
the gap is so big and because these things move forward every year, there's just no hope to catch up. Well, I mean, at some point, if Apple stalls or if the competitors make leapfrogs, they'll catch up. But it doesn't seem like that's happening. Yeah. Uh, And one of the things they did with the M1 uh, that I think was really smart in Rosetta was the if you run an Intel app, it compiles for Apple Silicon the first time you load it. So I just had this happen to me the other day. I loaded up an app and it was bouncing a bunch of time the first time I ran the app. But then you never have that problem again. Uh, Doing that with that first run, to me, makes so much more sense than trying to do it on the fly every time you run the app. And it's just like you can tell the team at Apple just like wired this thing down from the the get-go. So, Shahid, you had uh, a career with Sony. And like David said, now you're out uh, on your own. I'd love to hear a little bit about about what you're doing and maybe some of the tools you're using to get that work done. Sure. So I have what some people uh, euphemistically refer to as a portfolio career at the moment. I juggle a number of things. I think it's just modern business life. I talked about coaching, which I still do for one or two clients at a time. My key client is PlayStation in Spain, in the entire Iberian region, in fact. And that continues to be an important activity for me. Uh, Apart from that, I do some advising for developers or publishers, depending on who I'm working with. Those are usually confidential arrangements, so I don't talk about those much publicly but um but they're also very rewarding these are all part-time obviously i'm still doing the remaster podcast with mike and federico and thoroughly enjoying it we're not too far away from episode 100 believe it or not the show's over five years old i can hardly believe that myself (laughs) um last year i started a newsletter i just wanted to get more into writing And I've been committing to releasing a newsletter related to uh, the psychology of video games development and the best practices that I've taken from a lifetime spent in the video games world. That's called Dancing Monkeys. That's out every Tuesday. So I'll have to knock another one out tomorrow. But that was just to develop the discipline of regular writing. So I eventually deliver on my threat to write a book, which I've meaning to do for quite some time now and long overdue. Um, I, over the course of the last year, I ported a game. I say ported in the past tense because I just found out today that Final QA has passed on all of the bugs, uh, but I ported a game from PC and Switch to um, to iOS and Android, both phones and tablets. And uh, I I did that with a very trusted um, former partner in crime, who I think I might have mentioned on the last show, I'm not sure. But hello, Kieran, if you're listening. Kieran's a legend. Uh, He does seriously hard bits. And um, that has gone really, really well, really smoothly. And as I say, went mostly on the Mac. Uh, What else? Sometimes I forget, but yeah, that, and also last year I helped my friend David Eastman produce Floor 13 Deep State, which was kind of a revisit 
of a game he made in the 90s. He'd been out of the video games industry for decades, and I'd been trying to persuade him for a long, long time to get back in. And uh, when he eventually did, I then had to find a way of getting it funded, thus my role as a producer. And we did, and that was released by Humble Games very late last year. And David is working on an update as we speak. That was a really, really great team to work on. But I acted as a, you know, not, not a typical video game producer, more like um, the way a movie producer would operate. So securing the financing, ensuring the team has what it's what it needs and um, pointing out potential pitfalls, that kind of thing. But obviously staying involved, but not as hands-on as a typical producer. The team are exceptionally professional, so there was very little need for that. One of the things I admire about you, Shahid, is that not only do you kind of work on the production end and, and you know, shepherd these games from idea to release, but you also get your hands dirty in the code on occasion, too. And when I talk to you, I hear how you're working actually on the game itself. And I don't think there's a lot of people who, like, are top down the way you are. Um, what are the tools you're using from managing development to doing development um, in the industry these days? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So let's start from the top down. DocuSign. <laughs> uh, because that that is what I use for, for creating template agreements. Sure. Um, and for getting stuff signed. Because the old way was just so brutal. I've done the old way. And I never, ever, ever want to go back. Yeah, so, I'm well familiar with DocuSign and my <laughs> other job. Yeah. You know, I, I went through a process this year where I looked at all the competitors to DocuSign, and some yeah. of them are cheaper and some of them are have a few more features. But it's just the ubiquity of DocuSign. Ultimately, I just signed up for a, a subscription for that. And I use it all the time in the law practice. It's just, it is really a, um, a well run service that I've just never had a problem with. Right. I mean, it's like when when you're arranging a Zoom meeting and someone suggests, well, why don't we do Microsoft Teams? <laughs> no one does the alternative. Yeah. People just do Zoom now, you know. Um, yeah. So to to kind of suggest an alternative doc, to DocuSign is very difficult, given that it has become the de facto standard. Um, so yeah, uh, DocuSign is, is important for keeping all of that stuff in place. I use Notion. Um, Notion has been a really useful, life-changing piece of software for me. Not only do I use it for creating wikis of projects that I'm working on, but I can create Kanban boards in it. The last time we spoke, I was using Trello, but I can do all of yeah. that in Notion now. So Trello just goes away. Um, I can't even remember what I was using for wikis before, but whatever it was went away. Whenever I need to create references, this thing is creating beautiful inline links and it can even do page embeds of really important information. So for the creation of reference stuff, Evernote goes away. So it does all of this stuff and it's very neat, very well laid out. It looks beautiful and is astonishingly good value. So so Notion is kind of like the hub of the project for me in, in many ways. And, and I'll just add an edit editorial note there for the listeners Next week, we have the guy for Notion coming in to talk on Mac Power Users. So we're going to have a whole episode on Notion next week. So 
let's let's consider uh, Shahid's experience as a starting point. There's we're going to be talking a lot more about that. Well, I look forward to next week's episode. I will be listening eagerly. But yeah, Notion has been tremendous for me. I, I've used it on several projects. So it has been battle tested and it has never let me down. And I also use it for personal stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, are you using it for personal, but also are you using it with team members? Do you have other people accessing your Notion database? Yes. So the 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 thing is, I use it with individuals per page, so I'm not subscribed to the team plan because I'm already subscribed to so many things. It's not even funny. I mean, you you got to watch the pennies with a small business. And, and so the personal plan is absolutely fine. I do pay for mine. I don't use a free version because that would be really cheap. Um, I could have gone to the free version when they switched to a free plan allowing you to have more data, but uh, I thought, no, that, that that was too cheap. So I'm paying for it, but I'm not going for the team one yet. I might do if I work with a larger team at some point. I think it would make more sense now, uh, more sense then than it does now. But right now, um, if I'm working with individuals, I will just invite them to the page I want to, to work uh, to work on with them. So, for example, with the port project that I mentioned earlier, sadly, I can't reveal the name, but you'll find out soon enough. Uh, for the port project, Kieran is on the page where I have the Kanban for for the project. So that's really useful. Um, I think he's on a couple of other pages as well, which it just makes it really, really useful. I use it for personal stuff too. So I have my um, uh, goals on there and I have, uh, the, uh, the way it handles images is just beautiful. You know, um, if if you link to something, it will automatically insert an image uh, in a gallery view. You can adjust the image so that it's framed absolutely perfectly. You can have all kinds of views. You can have filtered views. Um, the other thing I like about it is it's got a database structure as well, if you want to go for that. And it's it's a proper database, you know. Um, I I can't remember the last time I had so much fun with a tool that I could use for so many use cases. But Notion has been really excellent for me, really transformative. I'd recommend it to absolutely everyone. Uh, so there's that. I still use Slack. I like not to, if I can, um, because it's bloated. Um, it takes up a lot of memory. I believe it's written in Electron. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but if it is, uh, just say no to Electron. Give me Mac native any day. Any app that's Mac native, I will automatically love. And if it's Electron, I will harbor deep suspicions that they might betray us and become more PC focused at some point or just stay on the web and stay neutral. And that's like, you know, whose side are you on really? Are you on the user side? Or you just want to tie us into um, some subscription model that keeps us on the server forever. I'm not so keen on that. I used to agree with you on Electron apps, but Obsidian is my darling and it's Electron. So I don't, I, I don't have that high ground anymore. <laughs> David, I'm this close to jumping onto Obsidian. I've been using Rome Research for a yeah. long time. And I love Rome Research. I really do. But I have two problems with it. The first is during a recent and very important phone call that involved financial matters. I was typing notes into Rome Research and it failed to sync the notes and I lost those notes. And I don't remember them because I was paying so much attention to the call. Sure. And I was just reflexively typing. 
And data loss is a red line for me. Uh, I'm, I'm 55. I do not have time for for data loss. It just makes you look unprofessional if you have to repeat the details of that call. So now I use pen and paper, but I, at the same time as I started using Rome Research, I had considered Obsidian, but Obsidian didn't support block links back then. It only yeah. supported page links. But now it's beginning to do that, so I might be forced to join you. Yeah, it fully supports block links now, and it's yeah, it just does. a markdown yeah. file on your computer, so you'll exactly. never lose data. Yeah. And then you can sync it to iCloud, which I trust more anyway. But yeah, yeah that was the second thing about talking of iCloud. second thing about Rome Research is you're Stuff doesn't live on your computer. Sure, you could export it, but are you going to? When the chips are down, uh, something happens, will you have backed up? Will you have exported? Will it be in the format that you need? We've talked about silos before, and you've talked about it often. You know, I remember at one point we talked about Evernote and getting your stuff out. That was a long, long time ago. But um, yeah, just, just to have it locally, it would make a lot more sense for me. I'm not going to lose anything that I've got locally. So, so you'd vouch for Obsidian, would you? Yeah, and I'd say as to Evernote, it was a long time ago, maybe ten years ago, that I called it the Roach Motel because you couldn't get stuff out. But <laughs> I just, I just went into it recently because when I wrote the paperless field guide, I was going to do a whole section on it, and you still can't get stuff out. They still haven't solved that problem, and I didn't what? want to recommend it. So. So I didn't, I didn't put it in there. But and then on Obsidian, they've added a feature now with like one click, you can get a URL to this direct page in Obsidian. So someone like you, who's a big Notion user, you can embed your Obsidian pages in essence into um, your Notion database. So all of a sudden, you can cross-link and you know do all that you know contextual computing stuff I whine about so much um, between those two platforms. So that's cool. Oh wait. I've got a 48-inch TV on which all of those panes will look amazing now, which I didn't yeah. have when I was first looking at Obsidian. Thank yeah. you, David. I've <laughs> made the decision. <laughs> I'm switching tonight. As soon as this episode is done, I am switching. Thank you. Well, now you can't complain about Electron apps. I don't know. But the, this one is special. <laughs> Sorry, did, I, well, Electron apps? Did, didn't I say I love them? <laughs> <laughs> What about the development work? Um, what are the tools you're using to actually make the games these days? Oh, that's a lot more streamlined than it used to be. So I use Unity. Unity does not need uh, a mention, um, I hope. It's an integrated development environment, game, world, building system. But it does not come with a text editor. I think it might in later versions. Uh, but usually they rely on Visual Studio. I used to use Visual Studio to edit the C-sharp code in my Unity projects, but um, not anymore because I switched to JetBrains, JetBrains Rider on the recommendation of a former PlayStation engineer um, who who's a legend. Um, and I, I tried the trial and it was just mind-blowingly good. And I never thought I'd give up Visual Studio or Sublime Text, but they they have both fallen by the wayside, and I'm now an absolutely committed user of JetBrains Rider and anything else JetBrains does for that matter. Um, as a quick side note, I have a, a Playdate uh, development unit, and in order to develop C code for it, because it prefers Lua, but you can do C for it, 
use a system called C-Lion, and that's the letter C-Lion, and that's also by JetBrains. So that was a nice discovery for me. Plus, they also apparently made Android Studio. So a lot of things that JetBrains do, but Rider is, for me, the best editing environment for Unity C-Sharp that I've come across. And nothing else comes even close. Um, It does the debugging, it does refactoring, it does suggestions. um, The searching is incredible. uh, It's just lightning fast and, and it's beautiful and incredibly robust. It has version control built in. You do pretty much everything that you ever want to do in your entire life, you could probably do within Rider. Uh, so that, that's been wonderful. So Unity as my game engine and uh, world building uh, and IDE, to some extent, visual IDE of choice, and JetBrains Rider for handling the C-sharp side of things, which is all of the code. And then my code usually lives in GitHub in a private repository, which is shared between me and Kieran. And the client that I'm now using and have paid for uh, with great pleasure is called Fork, which is an unfortunate name because although it's a really good name, if you look for Git Fork, you're going to find the command Fork in Git. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, I can see that. Uh, so that's a bit of a pain, but their URL is fork.dev, worth visiting. They let you use Fork for as long as you like, but I had no hesitation in paying for it. By far the best Git client I've ever used has not let me down once um, in almost a year of development. It's been totally robust and uh, has kept the project in a sane state. So those three things are the main things for for video games development that I've been using. And then I would imagine for Mac stuff or or iPhone and iPad, you still got to go through Xcode at some point. You're right. When you're testing, okay, what, what you can do is you can hook up a phone and it can be an Android phone, it can be an iPhone, it doesn't matter. But you hook it up using a USB to Lightning or a USB-C to USB-C cable in the case of an Android phone. You hook it up to your MacBook. And then on the phone, you run um, an app called Unity Remote 5. And then after a little bit of configuration, when you hit play in the editor, remember you haven't built anything yet, you're running it from within the computer, you hit play on the editor, it will actually send the uh, the image of the game while it's being rendered down to the phone. But the key thing is, it will translate the touch surface commands into actual touch commands given within the game engine. So it's it's not emulating, it's almost acting, it's almost treating the phone like... Um, like a stadia, if you like. Yeah, sending yeah. images, receiving inputs, but it's receiving inputs via the touchscreen. What that means is you have an extremely fast turnaround time. That said, at some point, you do actually have to test on device, um, running on the device as opposed to running on the computer. And for that, you have to create a build. The build uh, creates, a bun- uh, creates an intermediary Xcode project, which you then have to compile and run. So yeah, there is still... Xcode stuff to be done, but it's it's all reasonably smooth nowadays. The other thing I did for a while, which I I had to abandon because of some difficulties through no fault of the system, was um, oh my god goodness, there's a a build automation system, 
which I've completely forgotten the name of. Fastlane. That was it, Fastlane. Um, and I had uh, some help with Fastlane from an incredibly talented um, uh, engineer who gave me some live help while I was setting it all up. And what that does, it automates the entire process of creating a build from uh, using Unity as a command line instead of having to type in a whole bunch of commands. It then does all of the packaging, all of the bit code stuff, all of the signing, all of the provisioning, all of the uploading to Apple's test flight servers, all of that stuff. And then if, uh, and that kind of saves you something like half of your time. Because normally that process of from creating a build to seeing it on test flight, or rather having it delivered to test flight, can take 25, 30 minutes. And that's a long loop when you want to try several versions in a day. And Fastlane reduced that down to something like 15 minutes. So that was a tremendous boon. But sadly, I had to abandon using that through no fault of Fastlane, uh, only down to certain project specifics. So at some point, we just had to jump off and do it manually. But it's fine. We were pretty close to the end. So that was all right. So Fastlane also, uh, for any kind of mobile automation and for submission to the various portals like the App Store and uh, the Google Play Store, highly recommended. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you need an online store, want to create a portfolio to show off your work. Maybe you're a writer and want to start a blog or you want to host a podcast. But Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. The best part is there's nothing to install, there are no patches to worry about, no upgrades are needed. You just don't have to worry about that kind of stuff with Squarespace because they've got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. That you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. Squarespace really couldn't be easier to put a site together. Almost everything is drag and drop, but if you need things like injecting JavaScript, writing your own custom CSS, bringing in widgets for outside information, all that is really easy too. Plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with Squarespace with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com MPU. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com MPU and the code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for their support of the show. Squarespace, make your next move. Make your next website. Shahid, one of the things I learned about you recently is the music you make with your computers. I didn't realize uh, that you are an accomplished musician and you've been doing music for gaming and, and brands, and you're doing that again, right? Yes. Music is actually my first love. I got given a really, really bad broken bass guitar when I was 14, 15, 14, I think it was. And although it was impossible to play anything on that instrument, um, 
I never forgot my love of bass guitar. And so when I started making money out of video games, which was in my mid to late teens, more mid-teens, I had enough money to buy bass guitar. And so my love of music really, um, really began at that point. Uh, my, my love of performance, that is, as opposed to just listening, which I'm sure everyone does. Are, are you familiar with the idea of bass face? Do you have bass face? Yes, we do have bass face. Um, and uh, my bass face is probably not very pretty, which <laughs> might explain why I've taken so long to make a YouTube video. <laughs> I, I'm going to put a link in the show notes for listeners who've never heard of this. But if you ever see a band playing, just look at the face of the bass player. There, there's something about it. I mean, that what you don't realize is bass players are the ones that really have to keep the beat. They're the ones that have to keep it solid. And man, they concentrate on that so hard, their faces take very strange shapes. Have you ever heard of bass face, Stephen? Oh, yeah. I played uh, bass guitar all through high school and college. Wait, so wait, I, I've wait, been wait. This. <laughs> you never told me this. Oh, because it's in the past. It's not something I do oh, anymore, man. unfortunately. I want to see Stephen and Shahid's bass face. I don't know how I'm going to pull this off. I'm going to send point. you... You know what? There might be a bass face image of me somewhere on the internets, on the intertubes. Right. A recent one as well. I think I was wearing a suit as well. And I was playing my bass. In fact, there might be a video. There might be a video. <laughs> Me playing along with a um, Mick Khan fretless bass line. Yes, I'm sure it exists. S Steven, is there, Challenge. tell me, please tell me, there's video of, of your bass face I somewhere. I don't think there's video. I'm not even sure there's any photos. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I'm sure there aren't any. <laughs> All right, Adam Neely did a whole video on bass face. I'll put it in the show notes. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted. Yeah, so no, you went from playing bass, but you're also producing music, right? Yeah, yeah. I I had a band. Um, uh, the band nearly got signed to CBS um, and Warner, not at the same time, obviously. But I ran out of money, and frankly, I didn't. I didn't make the right decision. I should have just carried on with that. Um, but I didn't carry on, and so after a while, I decided to use my music making skills uh, to make music for video games. And I got noticed a fair bit. This would have been the late 80s, early 90s. And then I started making music for a bunch of games. And then when I became a lot more busy, leading teams and so on, uh, and then moving into uh, publishing, I would moonlight. <laughs> no one knew this at the time. I would moonlight making soundtracks for uh, Game Boy games, Game Boy Advance games, that kind of thing. And one of the games that I did some music on was Resident Evil Gaiden. And I moonlighted when I did that. I was actually working at Virgin Interactive as a producer at the time. And people picked up on this piece quite recently and uh, and quite liked it. But um, yeah, that's chip music. But the thing about it is, even if you don't have the chip music chops if the music is good people will notice and i was astonished to find that people actually like this you know it's me thinking oh my goodness this chip music this does not sound like music to me but these these people who are digging this stuff up saying um that that was the best thing about the game and like, oh my goodness then it must oh, yeah. have been really bad but no not at all 
Um, and I listened back to it recently. A couple of the tunes are okay, you know. Uh, so yeah, there was that. But I also did a bunch of stuff for the PC, for the Amiga, uh, for the Super Nintendo, for the Sega Genesis. What else? All the 8-bit stuff as well, obviously. All of the 16-bit stuff, some 32-bit stuff. Uh, and then I moved into other areas. But then eventually I came back to making music again, did a few demos, uh, put the demos out. Demos are somewhere on SoundCloud. They never really got finished, but a couple of them showed promise, I think. Uh, then what happened? A couple of years ago, I got some singing lessons and I thought, you know what? There's something left undone. It's the same way I felt about video games and is why I left PlayStation. I thought I wanted to get back into making games again. You know that there's that creative itch just will not leave you alone. And I felt the same thing about music a couple of years back. So I got some singing lessons. I started taking my music more seriously. I've been practicing. Um, and then I got the Quervain syndrome. Um, as you know, I've had a lot of RSI issues over the years. I've had several surgeries, but the Quervain's particularly affects the wrist and thumb, which makes it very hard for me to hold a guitar or bass. I can still just about play some stuff, but makes it very hard for me to do the complex stuff that I really liked to do. And by complex, I mean just longer reaches, you know, where you really have to get leverage on the neck. Uh, so that was a shame. So I got into keyboard instead. So you know what? I'll teach myself how to play piano. And that decision was made about two weeks ago. And I've been teaching myself how to play piano. And loving every single minute of it and can't wait to do some keyboard-based stuff instead. You know, just find a way around. If your hand doesn't work properly, just find another way, you know? <laughs> so so are you making music now on the Mac? I am. I am. And you know what? Next week, I plan on putting a demo out. And then I will ask uh, somebody I know who's an exceptional producer. I can't mention him because I haven't asked him yet. <laughs> <laughs> if you'll help me produce it and turn it into something really good. Because I can shape it up. I can get a good demo done. But what, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a producer in the music sense. I'll really want to produce it. Like a, but I think I will put the demo out next week. Well, put it out by the weekend and we'll put it in the show notes. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Okay. That's that's quite the incentive. There you go. What What tools are you using? I'm using Logic, of course. I've been using Logic since it was creator on the Atari ST back in 1987. All the way back. All With the way back. built-in MIDI ports. Amazing. And it kept rock solid time. But yeah, I've been using it since then. Upgraded constantly. Uh, moved from the ST to the PC and then from the PC to the Mac and never looked back. I use the Arturia um, Pigments 2 Soft Synth, which is a thing of utter beauty i mean just visually stunning but the sound is just there's nothing else like it there's nothing else that makes the sounds that pigments does uh, i use the ubiquitous um serum by xfer records or crossfer records i don't know how they pronounce their own name but everyone loves this synth serum is a superb soft synth I've got a few other synths scattered around, but that's the Mac-based stuff, plus various universal audio uh, plugins for my Apollo Twin, uh, some Wave stuff, you know, the standard isotope stuff that everyone has for noise reduction and all of that. Um, some studio monitors and, well, you know, I, I've been accumulating music gear for most of my 
working life, which started a very long time ago. So uh, it, it's something I have a great passion for, and I feel kind of frustrated with myself that I didn't admit this to myself before. Yeah, I mean, okay, I was kind of busy, but everyone's busy. Everyone's busy. It's never an excuse. I keep saying to people I coach, you, you will, the one thing that you will regret is dying with your art still inside you. And here I am, um, allowing myself to get old and not expressing the music that I know is still within me. So I'm fixing that. And the thing is, it's so much easier. You talked about collecting gear. I remember when I used to have like a Roland sound canvas and all these pieces of hardware that I would need to make music. And now everything you're describing are just software plugins for logic. You don't need a pile of hardware anymore. So it's easier than ever and cheaper. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, it's a golden age for music production on a computer. And that computer has to be the Macintosh. Nothing else will do. I know there are some people who say, oh, use Ableton Live on a PC. But why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> Uh, so another thing we wanted to talk to you about was gaming and and Apple. You, you definitely live in in both of those camps, but those camps don't overlap all that much. I think historically people have looked at the Mac as uh, not necessarily a gaming platform. And I wanted to know if you thought that was still true, if, if any of that has changed over the years. And then maybe we could get into Apple Arcade. Well, I'm I'm glad you made that distinction because that that's the point I would have made. That it's a complicated subject, and it, it's not easy to unpick. Now, for for the longest time, I say the longest time. I would say since I was Mac first, which would have been the year 2000. My goodness, 21 years this year. Um, not as far back as you guys, but you know, for me, that's longer than I ever expected. There. There's never been a time when the promise of games was delivered on for the Mac. Because the equivalent PC would always be better suited to games. But here's the thing. We've had so many more devices since 2000. So many different ways to play, including, as you alluded to, the mobile phone. Yes, Apple Arcade runs across the board, runs on... Apple TV runs on the Mac, runs on iPad, runs on iPhone. But let's face it, these were meant for the iPhone. And maybe at some point they'll be for the Apple TV as well. But it's never really been about games for Apple, has it? Let, let's be honest with ourselves. There have been the odd exceptions. And it's always a pleasant surprise when a game that's on Steam is available on PC and Mac. And given the choice... I will play on the Mac if the performance is not significantly affected. But if the performance is affected, I will just go for the PC version because that smoothness is very important to me. And increasingly, it's becoming the case that the very best games are just not running as well on the Mac, which is a real shame. So that's for the top tier stuff, right? But then there's the iPhone. Uh, what do we have? We have probably the most vibrant video games ecosystem that there has ever been. I'm sorry, I cannot say the same for Android. Android is a free-for-all, which means that the uh, signal-to-noise ratio is much worse than it is on, on iOS. And 
not a massively good reason for that anymore. But I, I would just say that that is the case. I'm, I'm not going to provide any kind of evidence for that. I think my feeling of both is that you get better apps and better games and you get better signal to noise on an iPhone compared to Android. And if Android owners or users want to fight me on that, I, I will gladly concede if you can prove otherwise. But I don't, I don't think that's the case. So although the quality is slightly better, I mean, the, the type of games that we've typically had up until Apple Arcade were increasingly being dominated by free-to-play and by hyper-casual. And that, I think, made a lot of game-loving people within Apple decide to take action. And I think that's how Apple Arcade started. I mentioned this to somebody I know in Apple, that I thought this was the rationale behind it. And I didn't get any kind of reaction, but the flicker of the eye suggested that it was pretty close to the point. There are a lot of people within Apple who do care about games and were not able to push the ecosystem in the direction that they wanted because they did want to celebrate games. But it's very hard to do that when the business model on the App Store drove people into a certain direction. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? You change the model or you introduce a new one. So they introduced a new model. And has it been successful? And the answer to that, I would say, is we don't really know yet. Please don't be like Google, who with Stadia try one thing and then make an enormous investment and then decide to cancel their first party. I know it's different for Apple. Apple don't seem to have any first party um, video games development. They, they seem to have focused on third party. And I think that's smart because they're still not games first. If they partner up with the right people and if they're in this for the long haul, and I think they are because they've made it a pillar of many of their announcements, um, then I think in the long term, there is promise, particularly if we see some kind of alignment between a purported future Apple TV with an enhanced graphics chipset and the purported uh, graphics enhancements to any future Macs. If we see that kind of alignment and graphical enhancement, there is no reason at all why Apple can't compete both on Apple Arcade and with other full-priced games. Because once they prove the viability of gaming on Apple across the board, across the entire ecosystem, people will jump in. And people will jump in realizing that there is an audience that will that will be well served and that they could they could make different types of entertainment for. At the moment, they're just not doing it. The kind of developers they're attracting are mainly the ones who get the hang of the business model and care less about the the art and and so on. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think their approach with Apple Arcade, it seems from all reports, they're very hands-on that they're working with these developers and development shops like i get the sense that they're they're done kind of letting the ecosystem decide if their platform is good for gaming or not and really taking the driver's seat maybe for the first time that's what apple arcade represents yeah but in fairness the ecosystem is the one that they created i mean sure the reason we went to these you know buy coins with real money model is because of the way apple created the ecosystem but 
But I, I'm also curious about your reference to the Apple TV because right right now what we've got is top notch hardware on mobile and antiquated hardware in these Apple TVs that are rarely updated. And there is a rumor that they're going to make an Apple TV that has real deal graphics power to run games. Do you think that's the missing piece? Will that matter? I think it's important. I think they realized that there are different ways to approach the TV. And for me, the the proof of that was in the Nintendo Switch. The Switch proved that you didn't have to have, I didn't prove it. I think it rubber stamped the idea that the best possible visuals did not necessarily have to be delivered on a console to the TV. I mean, okay, you've got people with huge TVs running 4K displays, but they still have a switch hooked up, which is HD. And you know what? The games are good enough and people are absolutely fine with it. So it's not so much that uh, performance is critical. The content is critical. It always has been. But they need to provide the ecosystem and the environment and um, the developer embrace that Nintendo have been so good at. Nintendo's big advantage, of course, is with their first-party studios because they're the ones delivering the very, very best experiences right now on on the Switch. But yeah, going back to them taking a, a cue from, from Nintendo, it's that there's more than one way to skin a cat with a TV. But I'll tell you how you don't skin a cat on a TV. And that's with the controller they currently have. So the very first thing they're going to have to address is a decent controller. They could conceivably ship the existing Apple TV. Not that they would, and not that they should. I'm not recommending this. I'm just saying that had they shipped the current Apple TV with something that still looks smart and stylish, but actually can be used for games, they would have gotten off to a much better start with arcade on the TV than they have done. Yeah, why is it that Apple is being so hard about a game controller? I feel like that seems like the kind of thing that they would love to make themselves. And if we had an Apple first-party game controller, I feel like the gaming developers would probably be more likely to make games. You think, right? I mean, I think for, for Apple, I think it's uh, they didn't really see the Apple TV as a gaming machine to begin with. And I remember there was a shift in emphasis where uh, there was an announcement that TV means apps, okay? TV didn't mean games. TV means apps. Well, no, smart TVs mean apps, but TV in general, in other words, the devices that you connect to the TV don't necessarily mean apps because those devices are more or less disappearing and being integrated into the TV. Yeah. In fact, J- Jason Snell just wrote an article about how he went on a trip and realized he didn't even need his Apple TV. Right. I mean, the, so the point is, it's not that the future of TV is apps. That future is already here. The future of Apple TV is disappearing unless it changes its emphasis. Now, Apple's problem, of course, is that it's always shifted it, shifted that box as a way of delivering apps, primarily apps, and now more and more games to hook up to your TV. But very few people are are taking part in that because there's no reason to do so. If you're going to play games on your TV, 
you're going to play on your Switch, on your PlayStation 5, and maybe your iPhone while you're waiting for games to load, which are taking less and less time to load, especially with these fast load next-gen devices and with streaming services. So that window is closing. So they have to take a stand. And I suspect the way they'll take a stand is with much more power, power that seriously competes with these other devices, with a much better controller, and possibly with some kind of future integration with AR, VR, whatever. Who knows what they're going to do with that. But, you know, I don't think it's a cert that they're going to be successful. There are many other areas they could be successful. I don't think it's a given that they're going to be successful. So whatever they do, if they do release a new Apple TV this year, I'm not expecting to be blown away. I'm expecting to buy one. <laughs> I mean, I'll do that, right? Uh, because it's going to be good. It's going to be better than the current gen device. It will be more performant. It'll be better at running games, but only if it's got a decent controller. But the control, you know, the, it's not that the controller is a be-all and end-all. It's just that the current controller, I'm sorry, it's just not good enough. It's not a good controller for a TV, never mind for playing video games on. Yeah. Well, it seems to me like there's an opportunity there because they do have an excellent mobile platform. And if you're making a good game for the mobile platform and you could run the game just as easily on a television, it seems to me like that would be attractive to people who make mobile who make games, you know. But um, but it does seem like it's it's been on the back burner a very long time, and you wonder how serious they are about it. Although, uh, what is it? What they call it now? Services revenue? That's a big deal, right? Right. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Pingdom. Start monitoring your website performance and availability today. And get instant alerts when outages occur or site transactions fail. Use offer code MPU to get 30% off. Today's internet users expect a fast web experience. No matter how good your content or effective your marketing, they'll most likely bounce if your website is loading too slow. With real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how website performance issues affect your visitors' experiences. So you can take action before your business is impacted. How your visitors experience your website differs depending on the browser, device, and platform they use. So you want to identify how visitors are experiencing your website so you can make informed optimizations and deliver great performance to those who matter most. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability, meaning you can monitor millions of page views without compromising the fidelity of your historical data or breaking the bank in the process. With Pingdom, get live visitor insights today with real user monitoring. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you sign up, use offer code MPU at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for the support of the Mac Power users and all of RelayFM. So, Shahid, every time we have a guest on the show, I always ask, hey, is there a service or two that you're interested or you use that people may have never heard about? I think I want to say you win an award because you gave us 
so many services and apps on this list that we aren't even going to be able to hit them all. <laughs> and you know what? I don't think it's comprehensive. Yeah, I agree. But you've got some great stuff here, and I thought it'd be fun to hit a couple of them at least. Um, uh, one we haven't talked about on the show for a while that you're using is ARC, A-R-Q, for your backups. Explain what that is and how it works. It's a little bit of a different oper- you know, solution for offsite backup. Yes. So uh, ARQ has been around for a long time, and I've been using it for a long time. And I use it to back up to, I think it's Google. Yeah. So Google has some archiving service, which is very, very cheap. It's not the standard Google Drive stuff. It's their their deep archive or something, whatever their equivalent to the Amazon thing is. I could never get the Amazon deep archive glacier ultra frozen uh triple kelvin zero thing whatever it's called to work so um i tried the google thing and that was really straightforward so i think i back up pretty much everything back my pcs up to it uh back my macs up to it and it copes admirably and it does it in the background you can set it you remember the services like backblaze yeah, I mean, I, I use Backblaze because I'm lazy. You know, I just right. I pay them. It, it it does everything. Well, but Arc, I, I used to do it gives you more control, right? Yeah, I mean, so so that's it. It's basically uh, Backblaze or CrashPlan. I used to use CrashPlan, but Cr- CrashPlan used to eat up like gigs of memory, so I stopped using that, and they went out of business as well, right? So um, that didn't help. But ARQ is like uh, Backblaze, but with tons of bells and whistles. You can set all kinds of parameters for how much bandwidth you want to use and when and where you want to send certain stuff. And it'll back up to pretty much anywhere. I think it'll even back up to your NAS if you want it to. I really haven't used its full features. I use it in um, I can't be bothered mode, uh, which is basically all of the defaults. And it's never let me down. It's It's been excellent. And I never notice it sapping my performance. So... So that's really, really good. I, I don't use their full, you know, they have an integrated one as well, but I think that was more expensive. So I didn't go for the fully integrated one. So you pay them something like six bucks a month, I think it is, and you get a terabyte. But that's not enough for me. I needed something that would give me several terabytes. Now, you also listed Default Folder X, and this is an app that's been around a long time. In fact, it's been around so long that they they added the letter X to it when it when they went to Mac OS 10, you know, but they, it was on before that. In fact, I, I didn't know was, that. Yeah. I think, in fact, this was, was this one that followed over from next? I'm not really, now I'm going to get, get this wrong. So I'm not going to say that, but the, it, they've <laughs> been developing this app for a long time. Uh, I actually have not installed it since I got my Apple Silicon, but I've been missing it. And, um, this is just a great little utility app. Um, could you explain that one for folks who've never heard of it before? The thing that I really love about it is that you've got several icons around the edge of the standard finder pop-up when you do any kind of file operation. So typically when you do some kind of file operation, you have all of your um, your folder structure visible to you. And default folder X displays a bunch of icons, which allows you to select your favorite folders or recent folders um, and other stuff. I only ever use favorites and recent, but it means you can extremely quickly navigate to the places that you want to navigate to for your most often used 
folders and and that means you never have to worry about whether you're you're landing in the right place or not. It just saves so much time. I love it. They're also part of setup and uh I think they're Apple Silicon ready. So maybe I'll have to go ahead and install that one again. Yeah, I I can't believe that Apple haven't included that. I mean, they Sherlocked everything else, right? Who is there left to Sherlock? I'm amazed they haven't included this functionality. Yeah, the default file, save, open, all that stuff in macOS is really been untouched for a really long time, right? They kind of added the sidebar and your favorites, and they've they've tinkered with how that looks, but it is more or less the same as it's been for 10 or 15 years at this point. Yeah, I, I don't remember it being any different. And now that you mention it, I feel a little bit silly for not realizing that you can actually add stuff to favorites. But you know, here's the thing. I don't like that to get cluttered. I like it to be lean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to plaster my projects there. And I used to do that sometimes when it first, um, when that feature first got added to macOS as a workaround, but I didn't want to. It kind of felt like Windowsy, you know? I'm going to stick my most important project folder on this list over here as a hack to be able to always access it. And I just preferred the way Default Folder X did it. Just much cleaner, much more sensible. Just having like that really nice skin around, like my safety blanket for Finder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. One thing that jumped out at me here was brave browser there's been some discussion of this over on the forums but what's the deal with brave so brave is supposed to not track you as much and not to show as many adverts insights and in return i think it has some kind of virtual currency i ignore all that i just like the privacy aspect the truth is when I'm not thinking, I'll spin up Safari. It's all very well having a privacy focus. But when the chips are down and you want a fast browser, you just spin up Safari. It's just Safari is so good now. And it has been good for a very, very long time. But Brave comes up and it takes longer to come up. It's supposed to be fast, but it does take longer to come up, particularly on the M1 than Safari does. And it's nice, you know, it does the Chrome stuff without being chromey, which I guess when you actually need Chrome is a good way of looking at it. So, for example, I will use Brave because there is a Notion um, extension. And the Notion extension will allow me to clip parts of a web page or the entire web page to my Notion database and allow me to insert that content into any page I wish. It's not available for Safari. And that's the only reason I will spin up Brave now, if I'm being really honest with you. When I first got it, I had high hopes of, oh yeah, privacy is really important to me. But you know, I don't know if I've just become a bit too laissez-faire in my middle age. But I've I, I just I I've come to terms with the fact that if you do anything that involves the internet, it's going to be public. You've got to assume it's going to be public. If you really want something private, write it down in a notebook. And that's what I do now. So whereas before, for example, I know this is a bit of a sidetrack, I would entrust everything to 
my favorite app of all time day one. I don't do that. I now will write private stuff in a notebook. If I really want to think something through, I'll do my morning pages using a fountain pen on uh, Japanese paper in a notebook. Um, and, and that's proven to be very useful for me. So the whole privacy thing, I know it's all about privacy, right? This brave thing. I don't think that many people care as much as perhaps we should. I should care because I, I make I think it's important, but I clearly don't. It's one of those things like the environment. One day it's going to bite us. And when we do, I hope it won't be too late. Well, one thing I've done, even when I'm using Safari, and for years now, I've had DuckDuckGo turned on as my default browser. And that's like Brave, a service that doesn't have all the tracking stuff turned mm -hmm. on. And I find that is actually a nice kind of compromise because Safari is the browser I use for so much. But um, not turning over every search I do to Google, I, I kind of like that. And DuckDuckGo is fine. And they even have a thing in there where they, they call them bangs, but it's like the exclamation point. Like if you if you say exclamation point G space and then type a search, then it does an anonymized Google search if, if you really want to search through Google using the DuckDuckGo browser. But I found that to be kind of a, a nice middle ground for me. I don't know, Stephen, what is your search engine of choice when you're in a browser? Google. Okay. Uh, you know, I got a Gmail account. All my stuff's in there. It doesn't yeah. really, really bother me. Yeah. And, and they're probably still the best, but it, it just bugs me. Uh, you know, as someone my uh, in my other job as a lawyer, I represent a lot of little companies, and I always hate the big companies um, w when they just dominate so much that the little guy doesn't even have a chance. And I kind of feel like Google searches that way. So there's a part of me that just feels kind of good sticking it to them on the search side with DuckDuckGo. Yeah, for, for me, it's not so much privacy or security as the idea that a large organization holds could potentially hold me to ransom. But you have, as a company, 10 to 15 years of my emails. What if you shut that service down or take it away from me? When I say shut that service down, I don't mean they're going to stop Gmail. They're not going to do that. But what if for some reason they decide to ban my account for a misunderstanding. It could happen, has happened. I've seen people lose their uh, entire email history from Gmail because of that. So that's, that's one thing. It's just being beholden. It's like some of the stuff that's beginning to happen in China, which is worryingly dystopian. I'm talking about the idea of social credits and you losing social credits if you do certain things. And that kind of uh, creeping control of large organizations. It's not necessarily that they're being deliberately creepy. It's that it inherently, with AI, moves in that direction if you're not careful, unless you establish controls and you're very conscious about what you do. It's why you get served. For example, I, I'm one particularly egregious example for me was getting served with a Send Your Dad a Father's Day card. Um, very shortly after my father had passed away. And that was an ad that I saw on uh, pretty much, it, pretty sure it was Google. And then there was an email I got, which was from somebody's database. Of course, you can't expect these people to know. But that's the kind of negligence that arises from too much data being in other people's hands. And and that's that's the kind of privacy I'm talking about. I'm not talking about somebody snooping on my 
on my email from a government agency. You know, they, they can do that anyway. They don't need anything special to be able to do that. And just talking about the kind of erosion of safety and decency in certain areas of life that can happen if you give too much power to one organization. But as I say, I, you know, I think all these things, and I worry about all these things a little bit, but I don't actually do anything about them because when the chips are down, I still use Safari. And it's not that I, it's not I trust Apple less than the Brave browser. It's just that Brave was sold to me on the promise of it being faster, leaner, less spyware less tracky and all of that. And yet I still don't use it. Yeah, I, I get it. I, I, you and I are of a similar age, and it's just like, I feel like sometimes there's this, just this saturation of data about me in the world. And it's like, how did I get to this point, you know, where I do get served ads that are shockingly relevant to something I was thinking about recently or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, there's just a part of me that that recoils at that. Uh, you talked about email, but I understand you're, now you've, and you're using the Hey email client, or are you uh, experimenting with it? Where do you uh, what are you doing your email these days? Yeah, so I'm I've been using Hey for a few months for my personal email, and so far found it to be good. Yeah, I'll use the word good. I won't say great, uh, but good. Uh, I don't like the client much. I think the client is it looks a little toy like. It looks like uh, a Basecamp product. Yeah. And if you like the look, you're fine with it. And if you don't like the look like me, if you think it's it it has that kind of... Um, do you remember uh, Turbo Pascal and Delphi and the apps that got made back in the day uh, yeah. with, with those tools? It kind of gives me that kind of smell. It's like you would see the UI in a Tom Hanks Meg Ryan movie. <laughs> that's exactly it right so like when you watch a movie nowadays i watched a movie the other day and i saw an iphone i looked at the ui and i thought oh my god gradient that's so 2000 and whatever it was not a recent iphone it dated so quickly but yeah that's the kind of flavor i get from the ui and you know I, i like my ui to look really really nice and so for that reason, I'm not totally happy with the client, but the service is really good. So uh, the service is really good. The client is not good. And so my overall mark for Hey is good. It's improved yeah. my e- my personal email life. My business email, of course, is with, guess who? Google with their G Suite, which is actually very good value. Um, and then you had some other little utilities here that I think uh, are worth giving a little nod to, like Moom. We haven't talked about that one on the show in a long time. M-O-O-M. Tell us about that one. Our Moom is indispensable when you've got the crazy screens that I have. The more screen space you have, the more important it is that you're able to configure Windows to whatever arrangement you want. And Moom is one of those delightful little utilities that allows you to configure your window layouts to your heart's content and to set up customizations for them as well. And now that I've achieved somewhat of a clean separation, I can now say that my MacBook is always going to be tied to um, my 49-inch LG 
and my Mac Mini with the M1 will be tied to the OLED. So I can have different configurations on each Moom setup. You know, I don't share the sure. settings across anything. So, for example, on the 4K TV, I will have, um, pretty sure it's three by two. That works really well. It might be four, but no, it's three by two. And on the uh, the grid on the wide screen, the ultra wide screen is five across by two down. Um, actually, beg your pardon. On the on the TV, it's six by two because that allows me to have narrow windows and wide windows and, and everything looks fine. Five doesn't work so well on a 4K TV, but six works quite well. Uh, four would be too narrow. Uh, but it allows you to create these virtual areas and pop windows into those areas with a really quick swipe. You kind of mouse over one of the buttons and then um, a kind of uh, overlay image appears on the screen, which is split up into segments. And you can drag your mouse across and it will just snap your window to whatever you want. And then you can also assign keystrokes to set up those um, and fire off those configurations automatically as well. So, yeah, I couldn't live without it. Not on a big screen. I mean, on a smaller screen, like for the MacBook Pro, when I'm using it just as a laptop, I nearly always have everything either full screen or like an iPad Pro 12.9. Um, with side-by-side windows in full screen. Almost never have overlapping windows because the display is too small. And you know, the funny thing is even on these larger displays, I never have overlapping windows. They're always tiled. Kind of overlapping windows, I think, have kind of gone out of fashion. Don't say that to John Syracuse. I I would, yeah, I would never contradict him. Whatever John says is right. (laughs) Sorry, John, I take it back. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm with you though. I I I use uh, Keyboard Maestro for most of this stuff, but I just have a bunch of different like locations and move them around. But window management, as we get these bigger screens, is definitely a big deal. And and Shahid, we have barely touched a bunch of the stuff that we had planned to talk about today. You're you're way into keyboards, and you have a bunch of ideas about that. You're typing on a Cole Mac layout, which I didn't even know existed until you told me about it. So we're going to have to have you back someday, but it's always great having you come in to to share with us what you're up to. I love the way your mind, you're so mindful about the different things you do with your technology and uh, you've already cost me money in today's episode. So, <laughs> you know, I guess that's part of the goal, right? Well, it's, it's payback for all, but well, more than a decade of you costing me serious coin, my friend. Yeah, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I've been shamed on my camera setup by you and Steven. So now I'm going to have to figure out a way to mount my fancy camera so I look better mm-hmm. on Zoom going forward. That's your fault, That's right. among others. <laughs> it, it's like going from 2D to 3D. Yeah, I know. I have to do, it. I, and I have a 4K clip-on camera on my thing, but it still kind of looks like garbage. So looks like it's webcam. I've got the is. It doesn't doesn't require me to spend really much money. I already have the gear. I've just got to set it up and and keep it on my desk, I guess. Um, but either way, uh, you guys are great. And uh, and I learned today that Stephen Hackett has a base face, and I'm pretty sure he's never going to let me see it. But I just love the fact that he has one. I'm going to be just. I'm going to daydream about that a little bit. <laughs> what does this base pictures, face look like? Pictures. We got to see yeah. the pictures. Yeah. We're going to talk in more power users today about all these streaming services and the changes they're making. But uh, thank you for listening. Uh, 
where do people go to find you, Shahid? They can find me at Shahid Kamal on Twitter. And um, if they want to hear from me regularly, they can sign up for my newsletter, Dancing Monkeys, which is on Substack. So that's dancingmonkeys.substack.com. Yeah, and if you've got someone in your life that's interested in the business of making video games, you get them on that list because Shahid has so much insider information and can really help out. And I would recommend checking it out. Thank you to our sponsors today. That's our friends over at 1Password, Squarespace, and Pingdom. We're the Mac Power users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. You can find the forums at talk.macpowerusers.com. And we'll see you next week.